Praise God. Let's turn to the word of God here this morning. I want you to turn to 1 Samuel chapter 17. We're continuing with our message series, The God of the Valleys. We began several weeks ago and it's been broken up this series. Sorry about that. But I'm going to remind you that in part one, we dealt with the God of the valleys. That in the Bible, God is the God of the valleys. We often think he's only the God of the hilltops. That's where we like to get the victory. We think we can only gain victories in our life, in our trials, when we're on a hilltop in an ecstatic exalted experience of great manifestation. Actually, some of the greatest victories are right in the valley, in the low place, when you're alone and when you're facing darkness and when you're facing the enemy. And so we laid out that the Bible actually denotes the character of God, the name of God, the nature of God as the God of the valleys. He's not a God who stays on the mountaintop. He is a God who will go right into the valley. And if you as a believer ever go right into the valley, I want you to know there's a testimony to be raised up in that hour. He is the God of the valley, not just of the mountaintops. Thank God that Elijah went to Mount Carmel and was able to call fire down. But isn't it tragic that afterwards he got one letter from Jezebel and he ran 40 days for his life. One accusing, threatening letter from Jezebel, that witch, and he ran for his life to skirt saying, I wish I could die. You need to be very careful that you don't think the victory's only on the mountaintops. Then in part two, we looked at the valley of the shadow of death, Psalm 23. And we get so used to a psalm like that, we can miss the power of it and the truth of it, that the valley of the shadow of death is a place where the good shepherd walks with you and ahead of you. Third of all, we looked at the valley of chance. That was last time. How there's an entire valley that is denoted or named after giants because the Philistines would come and use it to attack Jerusalem. I want to go to our fourth message here in this series on the God of the valleys. And we're going to go to 1 Samuel chapter 17. My message this morning, the valley of victory. Verse 1, 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 1. Now the Philistines gathered together their armies to battle and were gathered together at Succoth, which belongeth to Judah, and pitched before Succoth and Azekal in Ephesdamon. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered together and pitched by the valley of Elah and set the battle in array against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on a mountain on one side and Israel stood on a mountain on the other side. And there was a valley between them. I want you to notice that very carefully. And there went out a champion of the camp of the Philistines named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. And he had an helmet of brass upon his head and he was armed with a coat of mail and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of brass. And he had greaves of brass upon his legs and a target of brass 
between his shoulders. And the staff of his spear was like a weaver's beam. And his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron. And one... (coughs) And one bearing... Sorry, it's my eyes. I'm sorry. And one bearing a shield went before him. And he stood and cried unto the armies of Israel and said unto them, Why are ye come out to set the battle in array? Am not I a Philistine and ye servants to Saul? Choose you a man for you and let him come down. Notice that word down, down to me. If he be able to fight me and kill me, then will we be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then shall ye be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, I defy the armies of Israel this day. Give me a man that I may fight together, that we might fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard those words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that in this valley of victory, this valley of Ella, nor God, that we shall overcome the enemy, that we shall win a victory that shall resound, oh God, it'll impact our families, our church, our neighbors, our family members, nor God, it will affect everyone around us and even this generation. Oh, that you would again raise up a shepherd boy like David. Oh, again, that across your church, that you'd raise up, nor God, a young generation that is not in the mold of soul, but is raised up by your hand and by the training of your Holy Spirit. (coughs) Lord God, we ask for your grace and your mercy in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. (coughs) We are coming here in this part four to a valley called the Valley of Elah. I've called this message the Valley of Victory. I've named Elah the Valley of Victory. It was named for a reason, the Valley of Elah. Elah means something. But I want to tell you, I'm renaming this valley. And I believe this valley lost its name or even the awareness of what it was once known for because of a young shepherd boy who boldly went to this valley. I want you to notice something here about this valley that's different from other valleys. You see, what we've already said about valleys, valleys are a discouraging time, a low time. It is a place you don't willingly go to. You don't desire to go to valleys. That is normal in the Bible. But I want to point something out in 1 Samuel chapter 17 that is radically different about this valley. David desired to go down into the valley. In fact, he so desired it, he ran into the valley. He wasn't scared of the valley. He wasn't trying to stay out of the valley. He didn't go there reluctantly. It wasn't the good shepherd leading him there against his own will. Oh no, this is a radically different valley, but yet not for everyone. 
Most people will never dare approach this folly. And that's going to depend on your character, your spiritual life, on the work of the cross in your heart. You see, depending on what you've experienced of the cross, either you're going to stand on a hilltop not daring to go near this valley, or you are going to find yourself by your own heart compelled to run into this valley. And so we read about David. He went down. He ran down into this valley. He deliberately went into this valley. He went into the valley alone. He went in without any fear or trepidation. And he went there in faith with full assurance and already in victory before he even stepped into the valley. Before he went into the valley, he knew how he was going to come out of the valley. He wasn't plagued with doubts. He wasn't there not knowing what's going to happen. He absolutely knew what is going to happen in this valley. And so I have renamed the valley, the valley of victory. I believe there's a valley in your Christian life. There is a place that is terrible. And yet when you come to a place with God, no one will hold you back from this valley. You will decide to go there. You will descend into this valley. You will know it's the will of God. You will know it's a place of victory before you enter it. And you know what? You will run into this valley with full assurance to raise up a testimony to God himself. It is a remarkable thing. Let me just say here as we lay out the backdrop to 1 Samuel chapter 17. This valley is called the Valley of Elah. The name Elah is a plural word. And it literally, it literally means a place. Sorry, let me say that again. Elah is a singular word, not a plural word. It is a singular word. And the name Elah is the word Terabeth, which is a large, ginormous tree. If you go to the Valley of Elah now and it's there just like it was 3,000 years ago, the same hills, the same valley, you can walk there. You can go and see the sites and they have begun to dig up these sites. You can go there. Do you know what you find in that valley? Is at one end of it, one singular large terabith tree. Only one, not a whole forest of them. It's not an ancient tree. It's a later period tree, but it's fascinating that you'll find one single terabith tree. And in fact, this terabith tree is 17 meters tall or 55 feet high. This roof is 10 feet or thereabouts. So multiply that by five, maybe the height of this entire building. And you've got the height of that one singular tree. And in fact, that tree, if you're to go to that valley, you'd find that it is over 17 feet in circumference as you would go in around it. It is a ginormous tree, rooted, grounded. It is an old tree, but it's not as old as glass, I want to tell you. And so this valley was named after this kind of tree. I believe it is prophetic. I believe it is a, 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 has a message for us. Look with me in verse 1 here, what it says. Now the Philistines gathered together their armies to battle. Here are the Philistines invading Israel. 
They are coming up with their armies against Israel. And it says they were gathered together to Sukkoth. Sukkoth is on top of one of the hills. It's one of the two highest spots in this whole entire valley, overlooking this valley. And so the Philistines gather to this hilltop fortress. It's a very ancient fortress. This was a stronghold, a high place, a mountaintop experience. And they are looking down into the valley of Elah. So all the Philistines gather to this mountaintop place. But it doesn't say they stop there. And it says, which belongeth to Judah. They are coming right into the place of God's people. They are coming into strongholds that belong to God's people. The Philistines love to take over the strongholds of God's people. And you see it all across the church today. The Philistines come marching, saying, we'll take the hilltops. We'll take the strongholds. We'll take places that you used to possess. And the entire invading, vicious, wicked armies of the devil begin to invade and come in. And it says that this army of Philistines, that they pitch between Sukkoth and Azahel. Now, Azabel, I'm going to get all my words. I'm trying to focus here at the moment. These two spots are the two highest hill forts fortresses in the entire area. They are two mountain peaks and the Philistines choose a spot right halfway between these and it's actually a lower place. And this is where they begin to pitch their tents. They have chosen their position. They're on Judah's land. They have invaded. They're coming up against Israel and they choose a spot called Ephes Damon. In verse 2, it says, And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered together and pitched by the valley of Elah and set the battle in array against the Philistines. So you have the Philistine army with these two hill forts just behind them to their sides against this great army. And across the valley, there is another hilltop and Israel's armies come there. King Saul with all his trained army, as soon as they know the Philistines are attacking, they begin to gather and they begin to pitch their army opposite. So you have the Valley of Elah in the middle. You've got Israel that side. You've got the Philistines this side. And this Valley of Elah is going to be a place of warfare and of victory. This is where the enemy has come to fight against God's people. It is a remarkable thing. What do the Philistines represent in the Bible? Because every person, people, nation, city, mountain or valley represents something in the Old Testament for us in the New Testament. What do the Philistines represent? They represent the flesh, the old nature, the Adamic nature. Philistines always represent the flesh of man. And I want to show you the flesh of man is your greatest enemy. As I said before, flesh is the most wicked thing you can imagine. Your flesh, my flesh is a despicable thing. But the Philistines represent and when the Philistines attack, it represents the flesh rising up. It's a great onslaught of the flesh. We first read about 
the Philistines in the Bible, going back to the days of Joshua, when Moses died and Joshua leads the people in to inherit the land, the valleys and the hilltops. Joshua is leading the army in. And as he does, he is to possess every bit of that crown. They're to fight the enemies. This is when you first encounter the Philistines. Where are they? They're in the land of promise. Do you know when they arrived there, and archaeologists have confirmed this in our generation, when Israel arrived there with Moses, the Philistines, had a, they weren't original inhabitants. They only arrived in Canaan just prior before Israel arrives to possess the land. They actually move in, and I believe it was the devil doing this. He moved the Philistines in to become a stronghold, and they took up entire cities. They established five city-states along the coast of what is today Israel, the nation of Israel. And they took up valleys and entire areas. You know why? The devil knows the people of God are coming. And he sets these Philistines there. And so we see them in the days of Joshua. We also see the Philistines in the day of the judges. Do you remember Samson had a conflict with the Philistines? God raised him up to fight against the Philistines. But do you remember what happened with Samson? How he compromised and then married a Philistine girl. It's terrible that he fell that he lost his hair, his anointing, his strength, his usefulness in God because of his sin with the Philistines or with the flesh. And then we come to the days of King Saul. This, is, this happens in the days when King Saul is king of Israel. He is greater than any other man. He's head and shoulders above anyone in Israel. He was a large man. He was a strong warrior. He was anointed of God. He was proficient in defeating enemies. And yet he never defeats the flesh, or should I say the Philistines. It says in 1 Samuel 14, 52, and there was war against the Philistines all the days of Saul. And when Saul saw any strong man or any valiant man, he took him unto himself. Do you see that there was a hot battle against the Philistines during the entire reign of Saul? He never defeated them. Forty years he's on the throne and he never finally defeats the Philistines. They're always there. Do you know there's some people anointed of God, called of God, used of God, and they never defeat the flesh in a 40-year period. We read that finally it's a Philistine that killed Saul. It was in fighting the Philistines that brought about his entire downfall. The battle against the flesh or against the Philistines, it says, was sore, meaning it was strong, it was violent, it was very hot, it was very intensive. And so there were years of hot fighting against the Philistines. Sometimes the Philistines would invade, then Israel would win battles, but there was never a driving out of the Philistines from the land of promise. That was going to have to wake the young King David. Notice what it says here at the end of this chapter in 1 Samuel 17, 50. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone. Notice that word prevailed. 
that young David, a boy of about 17 years old, not a trained soldier, he is a shepherd. He looks after a handful of sheep. He plays a musical instrument on the hillside and is inspired to write songs. What does the Bible say? David prevailed over the Philistines. So you've got Saul as king. David has been privately anointed by the prophet Samuel just before this, a short time before this, privately in a prophecy and a word from God. A word come, you are the anointed of God. And yet he's going to spend years before it's ever recognized by men. But who do you have on the throne? You have King Saul in the position, the place of power, with authority, with all the money, with all the vital positions in the land. And yet he is a man who has never defeated the flesh. Look at this valley for a moment. The valley of giants was just north of it, and it led directly up to Jerusalem. And if you followed the Valley of Giants all the way down, you'd eventually come to the Valley of Elah. This valley is the dividing point between the land of the Philistines and the people of Israel. This valley divided the two regions. In other words, this valley is the clashing point between flesh and spirit. God's people and the Philistines. This valley had a long history of battles, of warfare, where blood was shed. And in fact, the name um, that, that is used here for this position and place means the boundary of blood. In other words, on this spot is the place of much blood shedding. That's where David is going to fight Goliath. That's where this battle is going to take place. In other words, there was a long history of blood being shed here. It was the boundary of the two nations of flesh and spirit of God's people and of this enemy people raised up by the devil. This valley of Elah is just one of five valleys that go from west into east into Judah. And this was used by the Philistines to attack them. Five different valleys that they could come in through. They didn't go on the hilltops through the mountains. They come in through the valleys and these valleys would lead them right into the heartland of God's people. And this was one of the most vital of these valleys. The enemy attacked through this valley, seeking to march right into the heartland of God's people. It is a valley of about six miles or 10 kilometers long, mostly through its whole length. It's about half a mile wide, but at this spot, it's about a mile wide. So you begin to see the whole picture of this battle that's preparing to take place. On the very east of it is the hill fortress of Adullam. Notice this to the east. So entering into one end of this valley, where this valley begins is Mount Adullam and the cave Adullam, where David is later going to prepare an army and have a cave that he hides in. And out of the Adullam hillside come little streams and trickling rivers that begin to flow down into this valley and they make the actual brick of Elah that flows the entire length of this valley and flows out into the land of the Philistines. So this river flows, but 
Rain and the river only flow during winter time. When the winter rain comes at Adullam, then all the water flows down. But during the summer, this river bed in this valley dries up. During the winter, water flows there and carries stones all the way down it and, and sets everything in place. Come the summertime, it's a dry riverbed. So I, as I prepare to show you what happens here, I want you to see a picture in your mind's eye of God's plan and God's purpose. At the other end of the valley, about 10 miles away, is the city of Gath. That was Goliath's city. 15 miles the other way is Bethlehem. That's the home of King David, our young shepherd boy David, where he looked after his flocks. So right between Gath, the major city of the Philistines, the stronghold, the power base of giants, and there, the little village of Bethlehem that was marked by prophecies about the coming Messiah, the anointed one of Israel. You have this valley and you've got a war raging between Gath and the flesh and between Bethlehem and the spirit of God. And it's all going to take place in this valley. You see, both armies that we read of here in verse one and two were on the mountaintop. Both of them were experiencing mountaintop experiences. Here come the Philistines with Goliath. Where are they? They situate themselves between two of the highest mountains. But they're actually on a lower hillside ready to do battle. They believe in hilltop experiences. Take the highest ground. Dominate the entire scene. We're going to win against the people of God. Never be intimidated by the enemy who marches, who attacks, who accuses. Be very careful how the enemy attacks and comes. And we're told that opposite them was King Saul. He also chose a hilltop at the other side of the valley and he arrays his army. It's a trained army, a chosen army. He specifically chose the soldiers and he comes here to fight against them. What happens for the next 40 days? Both armies stand off on these two hillsides at either side of the valley. We don't read of them descending into the valley and fighting. They both stand at either side on the hillsides. And you know what happens is every single day, morning and night, Goliath comes out and begins to challenge the people of God. Send me someone that I can fight. And if you win, if you win, we will serve you. The flesh will be crucified. We will submit ourselves to you. We'll become your servant. But if we win, if I win, you will become our servant for the rest of your days. I cannot tell you how decisive the battle of Elah is and that you get victory at Elah. Because deciding on what happens in this valley will determine the rest of your life, whether the flesh or the spirit will dominate your entire future. Men are made wicked at this valley. Men come away from this valley who are going to be li literally carnal flesh pots dominated by the flesh. They're religious, but they're angry, bitter, vengeful, murders in heart. I'm telling you what, what happens after this battle. Certain people 
claiming to be of God are going to walk away and be dominated by the flesh the rest of their days. Others are going to walk away and walk in the spirit and walk in victory and raise up a testimony to God. I believe that it's not only David who ran into this valley. I believe you and I also need to run into this valley. You see, Saul made sure he was on the mountaintop. He's got his entire army. 40 days they're challenged. Send me out a man. Send me a warrior. Come fight me. You know what? They're arrayed. They've got all their armor. They've got all the noise. They're shouting. They rattle their shields. They align themselves in order. They make a lot of an uproar, but they never descend into this valley. An entire army, and they never go into the valley. Saul doesn't go into the valley. David's three older brothers don't go into the valley. Nobody in Israel goes. They stand there and make a lot of noise. You know what? Saul believed in mountaintop emotional experiences. Stay on the mountaintop. Have an emotional, noisy, numbered experience, but never went into the valley. I'm talking about real spiritual warfare. They put on their armor, created a lot of noise. They had all of the numbers, but it was only a manifestation of natural, human, fleshly emotion. You know, there's a lot in the church can look dynamic, It can look like a mountaintop experience in the church, and yet it's nothing but flesh. Most of what goes on in the church today, it is the manifestation of flesh. People saying, we're on the hilltop, the mountaintop. We're in our armor. We're trained. We're prepared. We know how to bind and loose. We know how to rebuke the enemy. We know how to stand unitedly. We're at all the conferences, and yet they never go into the valley. You know why? They cannot because they're of the flesh. Listen what happens a little time later. You see, it says in verse one about this place, Ephesdamon, where the battle's going to take place. Do you know you can find the actual spot where David faced Goliath, the actual spot on the ground? Because it gives you the location of the two hilltop fortresses and says right between that, is where the Philistines pitched and made the place a battle. You can find the actual spot where this battle is going to take place. But listen, it mentions this place again in 1 Chronicles chapter 11, verse 12. And after him, after David, was Eliezer, the son of Dodo, who was one of the three mighty men. He was with David at Pastamon, that's the same place. The same spot where David previously as a young shepherd boy faces Goliath. We are told years later when David's raised up an entire army at Adullam's cave that another battle takes place on the same spot right again. But do you know who it is this time? It's Eliezer. He's a man who David has trained up in the cave of Adullam. And Eliezer is going to fight a battle right on the same place, on the same ground. But some decades later, he's going to have his own battle there. Listen to what it says. And there were Philistines that were gathered together to battle. Where was a parcel of ground full of barley and the people fled from before the Philistines. That's all of God's people. They run. 
when the Philistines come into the same spot and they themselves in the midst of that parcel and delivered it. Sorry, and they set themselves in the midst of that parcel and delivered it and slew the Philistines and the Lord saved them by a great deliverance. Eliezer went right down into this same spot. He stood there and he says, this is God's ground. I'm possessing it. I'm not moving from it and I'm going to fight the Philistines. And he defeated them and cleared the ground. I actually believe this ground you will have to come to again. There's got to be another Eliezer that will hear the testimony of David and go to that ground, to the boundary of blood, the place of much bloodshedding between the land of Israel and the land of the Philistines. And where you get that clash, where the flesh clashes with the church, you find this valley. And there's three things I want to deal with here this morning. Three unusual things that you may not expect in this valley. If this valley is to become your valley, if you're to possess this valley, I believe there's three things you need to overcome. And two of them you have to overcome before you get into the valley. In fact, two of the things if you don't gain a victory in, you will never go into this valley. They are above the valley, on the mountaintop, outside the valley. And I believe David had to get the victory with those before he ever faced Goliath in the valley. Listen to these three things very carefully. Number one, jealous brothers. Before you ever get to the valley of Elah and make it a valley of victory and defeat the flesh, you know what you're going to have to do is face your own brothers. You might have thought one Samuel chapter 17 was all about fighting Philistines or all about defeating Goliath in the valley. No, it's not. Do you realize most people get defeated by their brothers outside the valley on the mountaintop before they ever get into the valley and face Goliath? I actually believe there's many Christians never face Goliath in the valley, never gain a victory because they have not overcome the jealousy of their own brothers. If you look at this chapter, a lot of it is taken up talking about Joseph's three brothers from verse 13 to 15. Again, verse 17 through to verse 28. It's not all about Goliath. This chapter, in fact, is marked by talking about David's brothers before he ever gets down into the valley. And I want you to note something about his brothers. They are mature. They're older than him. His oldest brother is there. He is the youngest of seven brothers. But his three oldest brothers are soldiers in Saul's army. In fact, Saul chose them to be in his army. Do you remember just a little bit before this that we read about Samuel going to the house of Jesse to anoint the next king. And Samuel saw the oldest brother, Eliab, and he saw him and he said, surely the anointed of God stands before me. The spirit of God says, nope, I've rejected him. The next brother comes. Well, it has to be this one. No, I've rejected it. The third time I've rejected him through all the, the brothers. Isn't there any other Oh, there's only young David out in the hillside. 
Do you realize David was in a home where even his father didn't know who he was or what he was, didn't even think about him, didn't even bother calling him when the prophet says, call all your sons, one of them is gonna be king in Israel. I'm gonna anoint one of them today. His own father, Jesse, thought nothing of him. David's out minding the sheep on the hillsides. And look at these three brothers now who are in Saul's armor or in Saul's army. Do you know Saul, when he saw them, he chose them. God rejected them. Do you hear me? The spirit of God through Samuel said, I reject them. I won't even touch them with the anointing oil. And yet when Saul saw them, he said, I want you to be in the army. You know why? Their size, their stature, their demeanor, their speech. And he says, I want you in my army. These three brothers were a part of Saul's army. They were mature. They were trained. They were chosen. They are armed specifically like Saul. They are prepared and ordered. They know how to march as a soldier. They know how to walk with others. They never step out of line. They're dressed in a certain way. You can identify them. If you saw this army of Saul and they're on the mountaintop, they're looking for an ecstatic experience. They're shouting. They're united. They're together. They're under Saul's anointing. But you know what? They can never defeat Goliath. They don't descend into the valley. It doesn't even enter their mind that they could be used of God. Look at how they respond to young David. We are told that David is sent by their father to carry bread and cheese to them in the field, in the day of battle. They're fighting Saul, are they? The father at home is saying, they're there in the valley of Elah fighting the Philistines. They're doing nothing of the cert. You know what they are? They're making a lot of noise. They're a lot of talk, a lot of high views of themselves. But they're standing on a hillside. If your mountainside experience doesn't take you into the valley, there's something wrong with it. If you can't have a dynamic experience with God and it doesn't give you power to go into the valley, I would dare say it's emotion. It's ecstatic feeling. People all the times in the church, they say, I experienced this experience or someone prophesied to me. Well, go into the valley then. Find your glass, fight your glass. Run against your glass. But when we see David, he is being sent on a message to his brothers. And when he comes to them, it says in verse 13 here, that the three eldest sons of Jesse went and followed Saul to the battle. They're following Saul, a man who won't even fight Goliath, a man who is of the flesh, a man who is anointed with position. What sort of anointing do you want to follow? What sort of anointing impresses you? Is it a Saul anointing or a secret David anointing? Because again, in the church, we can't tell. We look at Saul, his size, his position, the numbers, the influence, the history of it, the fight and the battles. You still haven't fought the Philistines. You haven't defeated them. All these years, you're fighting enemies. You're fighting battles and still no dynamic victory. You know what I'd rather have? A little shepherd boy that's anointed in hiding, in secret, who looks after a handful of sheep on the hillside. 
But these three brothers don't think like that. They followed Saul and the names of the three that went to battle or Elias, the, the firstborn next on to him, Abinadab, and then the third Shammah. And David was the youngest and the three oldest followed Saul. But David went and returned from Saul and fed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. Look at them, 40 days on the battlefield. They're there shouting at Goliath. They're there shouting at the Philistines. You know, David gets sent back with bread. And when he comes again, they're still shouting 40 days later. 40 days and nobody has won. Nobody has fought. Nobody has gone into the valley. That's who David's brothers were. And verse 17, and Jesse said, take and run unto them. David rises early the next morning and he runs. Every time you see David in this chapter, he's running. He runs to his brothers. He runs down into the valley. He runs against Goliath. Do you see the heart and the spirit of young David? Everything he does. You say, oh, I'd run at Goliath. Not if you're running, not running on other tasks. If you don't even run to carry bread to your brothers. I mean, the small things. Encourage your brother. Pray for your brother. You want to go out and minister. You want to run out into the high street. Why don't you do that in the house of God? If you don't do that, there's duplicity here. Everything David did, he actually ran to the battle. But it says he got up early, left his sheep with the keeper, made sure someone was looking after them, and he ran to the battlefield. Do you know where he found them? In a trench. His three brothers are in a trench on the hillside. They're on the mountaintop looking down on the enemy, looking down on Goliath. Where are they? They're dug in in a trench. Now I can understand you being in a trench if there's bombs and bullets and arrows, but not when you're facing an enemy who's sending words against you. So when David arrives, they have dug down into the ground, piled up the stones. They've got a whole trench in around them. You know what? They're going to be there for the long haul. They've got no intention of marching into the valley. They said, we're here for the long haul. We're going to stay here. We're dug in. You know, when an army digs in, they're going to stay in that position for a long time. 40 days of trial. The Philistine comes out and mocks them. You know, these brothers, they're being tested in their attitude and heart. You're seeing something of their character. They're being faced by the flesh. And yet, what do they do? They're in trenches. You know why they're in trenches? Because Saul was in a trench also. That's where Saul actually stayed. And it says that David ran into the army camp to see his brothers. And he saluted his brothers. Verse 26. And David spoke to the men that stood by him saying, What shall he do to the man that killeth the Philistine and taketh away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Look at David's heart. He is stirred in the camp. He is amid soldiers, trained army men, generals, soldiers who have been in the battle. None of them are speaking like this. It takes a shepherd boy who's been alone with God, playing his harp on the hillside, someone who's protecting the sheep, 
whose mind is stayed on the Lord, who is outside of this whole Saul system. He is not a part of the system. But as soon as he walks in, he said, who is this uncircumcised Philistine? Church, I'm telling you, we need to be outside the church system of this day if we're going to make a difference. That's why this church is here. We're not going to preach like they do out there. We're not going to think like they do out there. We're not going to act like they do out there. There's a different way of thinking. I don't care if it's a sheepfold on the Bethlehem Hills. Oh, the battle. Look at the battle over there. You're just a shepherd out there with a few sheep. I don't care. You know what? I'm with God. I know the mind of God. I know the word of God. And when we encounter the flesh, we know what the flesh is. But these brothers are there dominated. Look at their, look at their attitude towards him. Verse 28. And Eliab, his eldest brother, heard when he spake unto the men, and Eliab's anger was kindled against David. Anger is a very deep-rooted thing. You know what anger is. All of you have got angry at some point. It's a red-hot, bubbling thing that comes up from the inside. You know what it's like to get angry with someone. Eliab, this trained soldier in Saul's army, as soon as he hears someone saying, who is this Philistine? Why is he being allowed to defy the armies of God? Who does he get angry with? Not Goliath, not with the Philistines. He gets angry with David. I mean, he is mad, raging, mad, angry at David. When someone gets angry in the flesh, that anger takes over their mouth, takes over their actions and attitude. Anger never stays quiet. Anger's got to be made manifest. And so he got anger. In fact, it says that anger was kindled. It began to burn. It began to stir. You see, when you meet an Eliab on the battlefront, he is more angry with you than he will be with the Goliath. Why camest thou down hither? And with whom hast thou left those few sheep in the wilderness? He minimizes David's job. Few sheep in the wilderness. You know what he's saying? Who do you think you are? You, you're coming onto the battlefront. You've got a few sheep on a hillside. Where do you think God prepares people? You see, you can think you need to be on the front lines to prepare for the greatest battle of this generation. I'm going to tell you the best place to prepare for this battle is a genuine sheepfold. I mean a real sheepfold where God is preparing and making you ready. He also said unto David, I know your pride. Look at how Eliab is judging his youngest brother. He said, I know pride's in your heart. Now he's judging the motive of the heart. This is a brother attacking a brother on the edge of the hill Beside the battlefield. Do you know what you're going to have to encounter in the church? Before you ever go into this valley, brothers are going to be in around you. You are proud. They'll get angry with you. Can you survive that? Could you survive someone in the church getting angry with you? Jealous of you. This is why I've called them the jealous brothers. Before you face Goliath, you won't even face Goliath. 
You cannot face Goliath unless you get past these three brothers. If you get hurt and offended and you turn and say, I'm going home to daddy. I'm going home to my sheep. Why? They hurt me. They offended me. I thought I wouldn't get hurt in the church. David is not easily offended. You know why? He is angry at this Philistine. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine? You know what? I'm not going to let some brother or sister get me out of the battle. Or get my eyes off what the cause is here. And so you have. This is one of the great tests if you're going to win a victory. Look at his brother. He's emphasizing the smallness of David's responsibility. He was there when Samuel anointed him and prophesied over him. He utterly disregards the prophecy. He even disrespects that the father has sent him with food for the brothers. I've come to help you to bring you food. I don't care. I'm angry with you. Why? Because you think you know something about this battle. He, in his eyes, David is insignificant. Goliath is a giant. He thinks he sees David in his true perspective. David is proud. David is a know-it-all. David's neglecting his sheep. David's a nobody. David is small and insignificant. David is someone I can wipe out with my words. There is pride and arrogance in his heart. Here is this older brother who thinks he knows everything. I want to tell you how dangerous that is. False accusations and an attitude of superiority. You can't even face Saul. You can't even get victory over the flesh. Someone who is angry in their heart against their brother is a flesh pot. Do you hear me? It's a testimony. What does it say in 1 John? If you're angry with your brother, you're not walking in the light. We've had a deal with it in this church many times over the years. We've had people saying there's no love in this church. They're the most angry people I have ever met. They can't even discern a right. They think they know everything, and yet they are blind to the reality of who God is. David had to walk straight through this barrage from his older brother. You know what he says to him? Verse 29, what have I now done? That means there's a history here. This is not the first time this has happened. What now? Okay, what's the latest thing? I can't do anything right here. And so David says, what have I now done? Is there not a cause? Don't you know there's a reason why I'm here? Why I'm asking? Why I'm stirred? Why I'm speaking like this? Don't you know there's a reason? All you can see is pride in my heart. You wipe me out. You disregard me. Don't you know there's a reason why I'm asking? You know probably the greatest reason for I'm asking? Because you bunch are in a trench. You're, you're bashing your spear against your shield, shouting, going, mighty are the armies of God. He said, 40 days ago, you're doing it. You're still doing it. You're dug into a trench. You haven't fought anyone. Don't you know there's a reason? You know the systemized church out there that's been around for 40 years and more. I want to tell you, they're powerless against the enemy. They're defeated already. And so you see these brothers of David, they're chosen for Saul's army, but they're flesh pots, anger, bitterness, false accusation, making judgments of people's hearts. You cannot judge a person's heart. 
You can judge their words, their actions. You can judge those. You have no right to judge a man's heart. You don't know the reason why a man does a thing. You could judge his words. You could say this action is not right. But to actually insinuate there's pride in the heart, you better have your facts ready. That's the first thing David's got to overcome. And he did overcome it. You know what? As soon as he didn't get anywhere with this bunch, he went asking others, what, what's going on here? What will the person get who defeats this Philistine giant? Do you see what you have to get through before you ever face Goliath in the valley? Number two, Saul's armor. We're not in the valley yet. We haven't gone there. First, you have to overcome the jealousy of your brethren. Second of all, you will have to overcome Saul's armor before you get in the valley. It says in chapter 16, 21, in the chapter before this, that David was called in to play his harp for King Saul. Remember, the Spirit of God would lift off Saul and an evil spirit from the Lord would come on Saul and torment him, drive him crazy. And then the evil spirit would leave him and the Spirit of God would come upon him. Do you know what you're looking at there is the flesh. You want to see what the flesh and the church is. One minute there's an evil spirit that comes upon them and torments them. Then it leaves and the real Holy Spirit comes and they can prophesy. That's who Saul is. I'm the anointed of God. God's chosen me. One minute it's an evil spirit. The next minute it's the real Holy Spirit. The real Holy Spirit. Why was David brought in? He played his harp and as he played, it eased Saul and the evil spirit would leave Saul. When David began to play that harp and sing the Psalms that are in our Bible, he felt so good. You know, there's people who operate by evil spirits who actually love to get in the presence of God because it makes them feel better. The evil spirit leaves them and they're much encouraged. But as soon as they get away from that, see, they've never dealt with the flesh. They never deal with the flesh. They actually think it's an atmosphere of worship. Get the worship right. Get an atmosphere of a worship in the church and everyone feels good. Do you know the flesh can enjoy worship, but it will not deal with the flesh. And so we see at the end of chapter 16 and verse 21, Saul chooses David to be his armor bearer. Notice this carefully. Who is an armor bearer? He looks after the armor of the king. The armor is what you put on to go fight a battle. And he chooses David, an instrumentalist, a worship leader, a harp player, a psalm writer. And he actually chooses him to come in and to be his armor bearer. Now for Saul, that was a title, a position. It was symbolic. It was about reputation. Because you know what? Saul doesn't use his armor. He isn't going to go out against Goliath. He keeps it there in his tent for an emergency. He used to fight battles. He used to go out to war. He can give you lots of testimonies. But you know what? He chooses David, the anointed of God. He recognizes the anointing, the power of God. There's something there with David. There's an influence that can Get rid of his evil spirits. He likes to be around David and have David in the palace. 
But you know what? That armor, it might as well be in a museum. And there's a lot of Christians, you better make sure your armor is on and being used. People can pray the armor of God. I pray the helmet on. I pray the breastplate on. Go use it. Anyone can pray the armor on every morning. That's what people do in the church. It was never given for that. I don't, I don't ever leave off my breastplate of righteousness. It was given to me in salvation by the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not something I put on daily. You know what? My breastplate is on all the time. I've got to use it against the enemy. I've got to face the enemy with my breastplate on. It's not praying it on first thing in the morning. I stand in the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. But do you know what you have? Saul, Saul uses it as something symbolic. Here, young sheep herder, hymn writer, will you look after that? I'm going to give you a position, a title. You know, when you want someone in the church, most pastors will give someone a job to keep them in the church. Some young gifted guy, it's all across the church, watched it all my life. Someone comes in, well, we'll lose them in six months. We'll give them a job, give them a task, let them do something. You can play an instrument, come up here. What have we told people through all the years? I don't care how good your voice is. You're not going to sing on this mic. No chance. If you come in here and play a guitar better than anyone in all of Ireland, you will never come up here and play it unless the Spirit of God ordains that. Your gifting means nothing. Your singing means nothing. Your skill and ability means nothing. You know why God has you here? To have a heart for God and to seek after Christ. What God does is up to him. That's not my choice, none to do with me. Let the body of Christ grow together. But if you try to keep people in the church by giving them a title, you're my armor bearer. Please don't give me a title like that. You know, there's books written in America about being armor bearers, how you become the pastor's armor bearer. And this has become an entire ministry in America in the church. And they're raising up these armor bearers. I need armor bearers. Please don't give me that title. I don't need anyone to carry my armor. Do you hear me? Well, you're going to pray for me because I don't have the time. Then you're backslidden pastor. Do you hear me? I know pastors, I won't even mention the country. And they literally say, I have my prayer warriors because I don't have time to pray. Pastors. And this person is my prayer warrior. They pray for me. I don't have the time. I've got a minister. That's scary. When Saul begins to want to make you the armor bearer, it's time to go back to the sheepfold. That's what David done. I'm not interested in being an armor bearer. David went back to mind his sheep in Bethlehem. But listen, Saul begins to hear on this day when David comes back, it gets back to him. There's that young sheep herder is back in the ranks and he's talking about fighting Goliath. He's actually asking about what he's going to get if he defeats Goliath. Saul says, bring him in here. Do you realize he never asked for Eliab, the oldest brother? Send for Eliab. He didn't send for any other soldier. He sends for a 17-year-old boy. You know why? That means in 40 days, David is the only one who begins challenging the words of the devil in the camp of Israel. He's the only one saying, what's all this talk about? Do you know why Saul's army was defeated? 
It was psychological. It wasn't on the battlefield. It wasn't with the sword. It was in the mind. If you're defeated this morning, you've never encountered the enemy. He's defeated you in the mind. You're paralyzed. You're saying, I can't overcome sin. I can't get victory. I'll never change. Do you know you haven't even encountered the battle? You're not in the battle. The devil is lying to you, throwing lies at you and paralyzing you and saying, I can't do it. Brilliant. The devil's got you stuck. And you know what? You will dig a trench and get into that trench. But Saul sends for him and begins to ask and says, what's all this stuff I've heard you talking about? And David says, I want to go fight Goliath. Do you know what Saul tells him? You cannot do that. He'll kill you. He's a trained soldier. He's a military man. He's a giant. You can't do that, boy. You know what David starts doing is testifying from personal experience. You know what? A bear came one day, took one of my sheep. You know what I did? I ran after the bear with my slingshot. I killed the bear, rescued the lamb and came back. You know what's more? There was another day a lion came and it took a lamb and I also slew it. You know what? Saul's heart starts to get stirred here. Saul loves real testimonies. He loves dynamic testimonies. He recognizes the anointing. He begins to get inspired. And so he says, okay, but you need to wear my armor. You need to put my armor. Remember, he's a small shepherd boy. Saul is one of the tallest men in Israel from head and shoulders up. And you know what he does? He puts his armor on David saying, brilliant, the Lord be with you. Let's put my armor on you and let's send you out against Goliath. What a disaster. Don't let Saul put his armor on you when Saul can't even wear it. Why isn't Saul in the battle? You see, I don't want to use the teachings and the strategies of a leadership that have never defeated the flesh. I don't want to do that. I don't want all these prayer rituals. You know, years ago, I heard of people going out praying over. They traveled all the way from Northern Ireland down to Dublin. And they went out in the hills over Dublin, started sprinkling um, Ribena juice. Ribena juice. They, they'd done communion and they, and they said, we, God has sent us to Dublin to bind the powers and principalities, to bring them into subjection. And we sprinkle Ribena juice on the grass and the devil's going to be defeated. Well, when they drew back into North, that's witchcraft. That's not Christianity. When they drew back into Northern Ireland, one of my friends said, well, I heard thousands got saved in Dublin yesterday. He was joking. He was mocking them. See all this foolishness that goes on. And you know, it's the same with Saul's armor. Here's Saul's armor. It's got dust on it. It's got cobwebs on it. And you're trying to put it on me. So Saul tries to put this armor. He puts the brass helmet on him. He puts all of this gear. He can't even walk. You know what David says? Uh-uh. I have not proved it. Say, I've proved my slingshot. I've used it for years to protect sheep. I've fought a lion. I have fought a bear. I've proved God in these things. I don't need your armor. You know what the slingshot and the staff represent? They represent prayer, the word of God, walking in holiness in the church of God. 
What we have in today's church, they're trying to put new ministries upon us, contemporary worship. You know, if you're going to be in the will of God in this hour and be used in revival, we need a certain kind of worship. They dress in a certain way. They move in a certain way. I've seen it. You know, every decade you see people in the worship teams move in a certain way. They weren't doing last decade or 20 years. I mean, the movements, literally, it's like a disco dance. And you see it in the worship team and I go, they weren't doing that 20 years ago. They didn't move exactly like that. You've learned that from Bethel. You listen their tapes, you watch the video, and now you're swinging just like they do. It's ridiculous. You start bringing in all of this training, ministry, strategizing. You know, David, you've got to have all of this training and then you can fight Goliath. No way. Thank God that this young shepherd boy, <clears throat> he said, I haven't proved it. You know what? I don't need your armor. You know what I have? I have the Lord with me. I have an experience with God. I have a testimony of God walking with me. Third and finally, the giant Goliath. You see, David's overcome his jealous brothers. Secondly, he overcomes Saul's armor. And that's very hard when you've got an anointed leader, a king in Israel, who's gathered an entire army, saying, this is how you do ministry. What does the Bible say? I think I'll stick with my Bible. See, today there's professional ministry and it hasn't accomplished anything. There's no revival. Our nations aren't being changed. Never have we had so many so-called apostles and prophets in the church. They're everywhere. The churches are now teaching who's your covering, who is your apostle. I have never seen our world go faster to hell than right now. They're saying revival is sweeping our nations right now. It's sweeping America. Okay, well, America's suddenly going to get very holy and multitudes of souls are going to come in. If this is revival, America's going to get changed. You can't have revival in a nation and it doesn't get changed. But third and finally, the giant Goliath. We are told that David descended into the valley. He had overcome Saul's armor. He goes down into the valley. There's no turning back now. He is going down into a low place. He is getting closer to the enemy. This enemy that you're going to face in the valley is a giant. The Bible actually says in verse 4 to 8 that he was six cubits and a span. In other words, he was about five and a half feet tall, probably about 35 stone. And that's not counting the weight of his armor. If, if glass had fallen on David, David would have been flattened and killed outrightly. Just one fall, not a swoop of his sword. The weight of him, the size of him would have killed him. He is armored in brass, which is a symbol of judgment. This man is an extraordinary man. He's not just a Philistine. He is a giant. All Philistines are not giants. Do you know where a giant comes from? It's when the devil moves in and interacts with men, with flesh. When demonic power comes into unity with flesh, you get a giant. A giant is an extraordinary monster-like man, and yet it's a man. It's a man, yet it's demonically empowered, inspired, grown to an unusual stature. 
I believe there's things in the church of our day, flesh feasts in the church. It's not normal flesh. There are strongholds, enemies that come out every day, morning and night, morning and night, morning and night, morning and night. And they mock the people of God. Send me out a man who can defeat me. This demonically inspired giant of a Goliath who came from Gath, just that end of the valley. That's where his city is. And you know what? He has family members who are giants there as well, waiting to come down that valley at a later stage. But here he stands 40 days. One man said, just send me one man. Saul didn't come, did he? The anointed of God, the great warrior of God didn't come out. Saul actually jumped in David and said, there you go, David. Wear my armor. You go fight Goliath. He wouldn't go. He wouldn't go. But here's David descending down. He has a light garment on, a slingshot. He's got a staff in his hand. You know what Goliath says eventually to him? You come to me with your staves, meaning sticks. That means more than one. We read that a staff was in his hand. Do you know what I believe he also had? It was a rod, a staff and a rod like we read in Psalm 23. David is going there as a shepherd, not as a soldier. We need shepherds again to encounter the devil. You know what a shepherd is? Someone who's been in the sheepfold. He looks after the sheep. He cares for the sheep. He is an example to the sheep. We need godly shepherds again right across our nations. And you know what? If you can qualify as a true shepherd of a sheepfold, I mean, you've got all the character, 22 qualifications, minimum, minimum. I think I'm going to add to that list one of these days, but there's 22 qualifications. If you can be that with your few sheep, you can face a giant. You can face a glad. You're the very man, not Eliab, not Saul, not an entire army. Just give me one true biblically qualified shepherd. And at the right time in God's plan, that shepherd can defeat a giant. I assure you, we need real shepherds in the church of God again. I'll never mock a man for his numbers or the size of congregation. But I'll get very annoyed if there's lack of character or heretical preaching. Keep the food to be sheep's food. Keep your character right. If you're a real shepherd, you can face a glath. What does glath represent? The flesh demonically inspired. Do you know there's fleshly things in today's church demonically inspired that Saul's army has no power over? Pornography, lying, accusation, false accusation, error, heresies, departing from scripture, apathy, unbelief, fear. Do you see what Eliab and Saul's armor and Saul are dominated by? There are many things dominating. They cannot defeat Goliath. This Goliath comes out and mocks them and challenges them. Says, just send me one man who can fight me and defeat me in battle. You know why none of them move? Because they are already defeated in their hearts. They knew where they were in their hearts. I believe he accused them of things saying, you're fearful. Yes, I am. You're immoral. Yes, I am. You're a liar. Yes, I am. Your heart is filled with anger. 
and he must have mocked them the 40 days and they couldn't move. Can you imagine Saul being paralyzed on the spot, unable to move? And yet here comes a little David running down into the valley. Notice with me as we close, right in the middle of the valley of Elah was a brick. It was a dried up brick. He didn't need to wade across the water. And as he approached, there's Goliath at the other side, maybe half a mile away. And as he approaches, he gets to the brick and he descends down about 10 feet. The brick is lower. It's a valley within a valley. So he doesn't only go into the valley, he goes lower down into that dried up bed. But do you know what's in that dried up bed? And I'm going to show you this later this afternoon. There's stones. It's filled with stones. Do you know if you can find where the river has flowed and flows year in, year out, you're going to find a giant killing stone. If you go to where that river flows, if you find that bed where that river flows year in, year out. Oh, I know it's not always a flowing. I know that. But there are times when that river flows and it carries stones and smooths them and prepares them. That's in the valley bed. And that's what you get. David descends down into that valley within a valley. It was 20 feet across and he goes down into it and he bows down and he gets himself. He chooses five stones and puts them in his bag. And then do you know what he does? He ascends up out of that valley bed. Have you been to the valley bed where the Holy Spirit flows? Have you been to that place where the Spirit of God moves and prepares and has stones sitting there to defeat your giant? Saints of God, I'm talking about defeating the the actual flesh that we need to in the church. You know, it says in Galatians 5, 16, this I say then, walk in the Spirit and ye shall not Fulfill the lusts of the flesh. If you're walking in the spirit, you will not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. If you're fulfilling the lusts of the flesh, if you're angry, if you're filled with lust, if you're filled with envy or jealousy, you know what it tells me? You need to get down into that brick. You need to walk in the spirit. If you can manage to walk in step with the spirit, you will not fulfill Yes, you'll get tempted. Oh, yes, you will. Temptations will bang on your door night and day. But if you walk in the spirit, you will not fulfill them or give them full access to your life. It says in Galatians 5.18, but if ye be led of the spirit, ye are not under the law. When someone comes under the law, I've got to do this, I've got to do that. I should be reading my Bible. I should be praying. I should be obeying God. I'm not obeying God. You know what? You've just come under law. If you're led of the Spirit, being directed by Him, being drawn by Him, it also says in verse 25, if we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. You might say, I'm in the spirit, I'm born again. Then walk in the spirit. There's a way for you to walk. It says in verse 24, and they that are Christ's have crucified the flesh with the affections and lusts. If you are Christ, if you're walking in the spirit, 
Do you know what you do? This is the mark of a real Christian. You are crucified with Christ. I no longer live. I have been crucified with Christ. I don't live any longer, but it's Christ living his life within me. The mark of a real Christian is you're going to crucify the affections. And let me tell you, if you don't crucify the natural feelings and lusts of the flesh, you know what they'll do to you? They will crucify you. Do you hear me? That flesh is rotten to the core. It is evil. You don't play with it. You don't educate it. You don't sanitize it. You don't perfume it. Perfume will not disguise the flesh. I've seen lots of people in the church try to disguise the flesh. You cannot sanitize it. The word of God exposes it. And you know what? You can try to look like a Saul, but Saul will never do anything for God. He'll never go into this valley. But David goes down into the valley, into the brook, in that dry valley, valley bed. And when he comes up, he runs towards Goliath. Saints of God, at the Valley of Elah, it's a valley of victory. You've got to overcome your brothers. Then you've got to overcome Saul's armor. Then you've got to overcome Goliath. As he ran against Goliath, look at him. It's a valley of victory. There is no fear. He knows the devil is going to be defeated. He knows Goliath is going down. Have you been to the valley bed recently? You see, there's besetting sins that you think, I cannot get victory over. That's a lie. That is a lie from the pit of hell. Saints of God, it's time to humble yourself, to fast, to pray, to go back to the Lord. I've got to get back to repentance again. I've got to repent, get washed in the blood, and then go back in the power of the Holy Spirit to say, I can run at this Goliath. You look at Goliath and say, nobody can kill him. I know, that's why you're not running at him. You have to be a maniac to run at Goliath. S turning your slingshot, saying, come to me, it's all over. We're going to win. You're all going to flee. You're defeated. Do you realize David had already defeated Goliath in his mind and heart? He was already victorious. And yet we get defeated by things saying, I can't get victory over that. Can't get victory over the Siggies. Can't get victory over some other thing. What is it this morning? Do you know what you need to do? Get to that valley bed again. Go to the lowest place and say, I need a fresh touch of the Holy Spirit of God. Please stand with me here this morning. Lord God, we need you. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Father, I do pray. Lord God, we need a valley of victory again. And Father, I pray right now in Jesus' name. My God, will you stir our hearts to run at the enemy, not to be defeated in our mind or our heart, O oh God, but I pray that you'd give us victory over our jealous brothers, that you'd give us a victory over Saul's armor. And my God, that you'd give us such a faith that we had seen no power of hell, no power of the flesh, no matter how big, how strong, how grotesque, nor God, can stand against the work of the Holy Spirit of God in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Hallelujah. Amen.